Welcome to the Doyen of Death podcast, funeral planning for those who don't plan to die. It's all about end-of-life issues and getting the conversation started about our 100% mortality rate. This series is hosted by Gail Rubin, certified thanatologist and the Doyen of Death. A Doyen is a woman who's considered senior in a group and knows a lot about a particular subject. Well, that's Gail. She knows all about creating the party no one wants to plan, a funeral or memorial service. She discusses the changes death can bring, and she'll make you laugh. This series includes episodes previously released as A Good Goodbye, a treasure trove of evergreen podcasts about funeral planning issues. This podcast reveals some of the mysteries and shares advice and tools that can reduce stress at times of grief, minimize family conflict, and help create a good goodbye. Remember, just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. So, here to talk about the subjects we sometimes avoid is author, speaker, and the doyen of death, Gail Rubin. Welcome. This is part two of our two-part episode. If you missed part one, do yourself a favor and go back to listen. And now back to more with the doyen of death. One of the developments that you write about is the creation of burial vaults. And we we get that because we had the rise of medical schools, which prompted the rise of body snatching from graveyards. And vaults were a way to try and prevent that. What would uh, surprise our listeners about uh, the development of, of burial vaults? Probably everything. This this seems to be everyone's favorite chapter. And, you know, Gail, when, when I'm with a family and we have to go into the selection room and, you know, most people are familiar with the casket. People hear funeral they you know associate casket with that in their mind, but then we turn to uh, the the burial vaults or, or what the FTC makes us call the outer burial container. Then people go, "What's that for?" And you know, it's morphed into something that is um, you know kind of warranted to be weatherproof. So the People that buy, you know, the, the actual burial vaults are buying ones that are warranted to seal against the elements. Uh, but if they don't buy one with with a plastic liner, essentially one that seals, you know, I explained to them that you know, think about everything that's driving over the cemetery grounds these days. You've got backhoes, you've got these huge lawnmowers, you've got stake body trucks uh, that are going to be installing uh, monuments or carrying earth. And uh, you've got the buggies that carry uh, the burial vaults themselves for, you know, an installation on the grave next to you. So you've got a lot of heavy equipment driving over the cemetery grounds. And what these things do now is they maintain the integrity of the cemetery ground, uh, keep the graves from collapsing and keep the monuments from toppling over, people from twisting their ankles if you go into an old Civil War cemetery, you're going to see the ground is going like this. It's, you know, it's waffling. And that's because a lot of times the, the graves have collapsed. And, you know, more often than not, you'll see some headstones that have toppled over. And when you explain it to people like that, they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it, it keeps the, the cost of maintenance overall for the cemetery lower and keeps the cemetery looking nicer. 
Uh, but what most people don't realize is kind of the origin behind the burial vault. And uh, they were originated to combat the scourge of body snatchers. And this is something that had been plaguing Americans for uh, really as, as long as America has been been colonized. Um, you know, going back to um, William Shippen, uh, one of the first, you know, doctor's riots over, you know, somebody being, um, you, you know, accosted because they were um, dissecting people was in Philadelphia in, um, you know, I want to say the early 17th century. I don't have the date right here in front of me, uh, but somebody fired a pistol at his carriage because he, you know, had a, uh, a dissection theater. And uh, throughout, you know, the next century, century and a half, uh, we see these riots uh, boiling over from time to time, uh, you know, when a medical college has um, been suspected of pilfering uh, what I'm going to call the worthy dead. So a lot of times if these medical colleges were uh, digging up the graves of, um, you know, the, essentially the, the pauper's field, the potter's field, um, People either didn't know or uh, those folks whose family members it was affecting didn't have the voice to kind of uh, protest against the medical people. It was only when there was reports of, um, you know, churchyard cemeteries being emptied that things would start to get violent. And, uh, you know, throughout this century and a half, two centuries, uh, you know, we, we see these riots occurring sometimes. Uh, where the the military uh, needed to get called in. And, uh, you know, in the case of the doctor's riot in New York City, um, you know, it's thought that upwards of 20 people were killed in that riot. You know, when the militia opened fire on the crowd uh, to calm them down because they were throwing, you know, bricks and things at um, the the jail keepers and some of the local politicians, um you know, it's, it's, I think it's four confirmed dead, but they think, you know, as, as many as uh, 16 more were carried home and probably died as a result of their wounds, ironically, for lack of a doctor's care, right? <laughs> um, so it, it, it kind of all came to a head in uh, 1878 when John Scott Harrison, uh, who was the son of William uh, Henry Harrison and the father of Benjamin Harrison. Okay, so he was a president's son and a president's father. And there was just this spectacular uh, body snatching. Um, you know, grave robbers managed to get his body and it was discovered in a medical school by his son. And, and I mean, kind of the twists and turns is something that, you know, almost out of a movie, how it came to be about. Uh, and, and when the public heard about this, you know, they were just screaming for blood. And believe it or not, it was the family. It was it was Benjamin Harrison who called for cooler heads and uh, legal action against, uh, you know, the doctors and uh, the grave robbers that were involved in this scenario. But this is when we see uh, kind of the first, um, I'm going to call them uh, offensive things being created. Uh, the first one being uh, the grave torpedo, which uh, a man by the name of Philip Clover in Ohio patented um, right around that time. I, I don't know if it was uh, 78 or 79. It was essentially a shotgun. And uh, the directions were to secret this 
near the pillow of the uh, decedent. And that way, if a grave wrapper smashed open the coffin, and they would always smash open the head end, they would never dig up the entire thing. They would dig a shaft straight down and smash open the head end, pull the remains out, and they'd be gone. And um, and then shortly after that, uh, there's a, a judge by the name of Thomas Howe who patented um, something that was similar to it. Basically, it was a landmine that you were supposed to bury above the coffin. And, um, you know, if a grave robber encountered it, it would explode. Um, and one newspaper commented that this was probably... Uh, more of a uh, moral solution than a practical one. Because imagine, you know, this huge shotgun-like thing going off in a coffin or a landmine exploding. It's definitely going to disturb the remains, but this was the mindset. The families were more concerned with um, their loved one not becoming scapel fodder, is how they saw it. Mm. Um, And then at the same time, we have what I call kind of the defensive uh, products being created and kind of the, the forefather of the, um, the American burial vault that we see today. And the first one was called a, um, a burial safe. It was uh, invented by uh, a man by the name of Van Bibber. Uh, it looked kind of like latticework, iron latticework. And you still see these above some graves in Scotland uh, they were put above the grave and held in place with a ledger stone. Well, the American version was a full cage that the coffin would be placed in and would be buried. Um, and then the next year, uh, we have George Boyd, who patented uh, the, the burial vault, uh, what would be now uh, is exactly the same as the metal burial vault. And this thing was advertised that it would take a skilled plumber uh, 24 hours to cut into it. So if a grave robber, um, or as they were called resurrectionists, is digging down and they come across this, they're immediately going to give up and they're going to go after the low hanging fruit. Um, so the advertisements for George Boyd's uh, metal burial vault uh, in the late 19th century were, you know, they say burglar proof. Um, and, and that's what they were billed as. And then as we start to see Americans um, donating their bodies to science and uh, kind of the whole mindset about scientific research change. Resurrectionists, they went the way of the horse and buggy. And uh, and then, you know, you see burial vaults. I, I don't want to say being rebranded because I don't think that's the right word, but cemeterians started to see the value in having the burial vault and how it, you know, like I explained earlier, maintained the integrity of the cemetery grounds. And, you know, Cemetarian said, hey, you know, we still want this product because it makes caring for cemeteries easier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how kind of the, the long explanation of how we got the burial vault today. Well, and it's kind of ironic that a number of people choose to donate their bodies to science now so that they get the free cremation. <laughs> That's right. The the mindset has certainly changed in the last 140 years. Uh, Definitely uh, a 180. There's not that that fear of, um, you know, and it was kind of tied up with the, you know, the fear of not being able to be resurrected. I mean, it was that, you know, there was this definitely this huge religious component to it. Um, and, And thankfully, you know, that's, like I said, gone the way of the horse and buggy. Gail Rubin, 
the Doyen of Death, has been producing Before I Die festivals for years. These festivals get end-of-life planning conversations started by putting the fun in funeral planning. Outside-the-box activities break down barriers to discussing death and planning for our 100% mortality rate. And now, Gail has created the Before I Die Festival in a Box, the comprehensive guide to producing your own community festival. It includes everything you need to create a successful event. How to find sponsors, build a team, market the event, schedule speakers, topics for discussion, workshop ideas, and much, much more. To learn how to get your Before I Die Festival in a Box, visit BeforeIDieFestivals.com or call 505-265-7215. Well, and speaking of cremation, of course, that's been a huge development in the United States. I think the first cremation in the U.S., you tell it beautifully, this guy in Pennsylvania, what is it, Washington, Pennsylvania, and he creates his own crematory and then other people want to come and use it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Dr. Lemoyne in in Washington, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, he... um, he, he created this crematorium. So uh, he was interested in sanitary reform. So he was worried that cemeteries were polluting the drinking water. Um, and he, he built this crematorium for his own eventual demise. So he did not build this as a commercial endeavor. Uh, he did approach a local cemetery and say, you know, can I build this on your land? And they essentially laughed him um, you know, out, out of there and said, absolutely not. So he said, fine. You know, he was, he was, you know, well to do. He had, he was a doctor and, and had a fair amount of land. So uh, he said, you know, he designed the crematorium and paid for it and built it on his land. And that was, you know, going to be his for, for when he died. And, uh, you know, his whole uh, thought process was, you know, this is a way to prove that, you know, cremation is a more sanitary alternative to, uh, inhumation. And um, while his crematorium was being built, um, a Bavarian nobleman uh, by the name of Baron de Palm died, and he was tied in with this new religion called Theosophy uh, that uh, Henry Steele Alcott uh, had co founded. And uh, Colonel Alcott uh, prevailed upon Lemoyne, you know, to use his crematory and I think um, prove its efficacy, you know, prove it could work Uh, because Lemoyne was not one to, like I said, this was not a commercial endeavor, uh, but Alcott appealed to him. And I think Lemoyne was, was curious to see if it in fact would actually work. Um, You know, there's probably a little bit of ego tied up in there. You know, if he uses it for his demise, he's never going to have the uh, pleasure of knowing that it, did in fact work. Uh, although he had uh, conducted what were called muttony experiments, he, he cremated a couple sheep to make sure it would work. And uh, I think he reported he got a gallon of, of powder out of it. So um, 
the uh, Baron de Palm. He died in, I want to say, May. And what year? What year is this? Like eighteen eighteen seventy six. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's you know cremation has been around for a lot longer than people uh, think it has been. Um, but so May 1876, um, and the crematorium's not finished. So Alcott has um, De Palm embalmed, okay? And he's held in a receiving vault uh, somewhere in Brooklyn. And then finally in December, um, the uh, crematorium is finished, and um, De Palm's uh, remains are shipped out to Washington, Pennsylvania for the first cremation. And it was a success. It worked. Uh, there was uh, physicians from uh, across the United States and different countries there to witness this. Uh, they each got a vial of uh, the Baron's cremains to take home with them. Uh, one of those vials is on display in the uh, National Funeral History Museum in Houston, Texas. So if you have any interest in seeing that, there is a great uh, cremation display there that was created by a good friend of mine uh, named Jason Engler. He is uh, Kana's historian. And Kana, for uh, those listeners that aren't in the profession, is the Cremation Association of North America. And there is a replica of um, the, the crematory room in Little Washington in the museum. And Engler went, you know, and the other people involved with creating this display went so far as to, you know, have the table where the, the remains would be laid prior to the cremation milled. So it's an exact replica of the one that is or was in that crematorium. Um, so it's it's a really, really cool uh, exhibit if you get the chance and you're in Houston, have any interest. Um, the, the whole museum is, is amazing. Well, and, and it's amazing that cremation, when it first was getting going as more popular, I, I want to say like the 1920s, but even then it was just a fraction of the population using it. And boy, things sure have changed. Exactly. I, I believe that by, this, by the 1960s, cremation was still under 5%. Uh, it took a long, long time to get going here in America. Um, and, you know, I don't know if your, your listeners have any interest, but, you know, kind of the, uh, the what, what I theorize uh, a couple of the reasons that cremation kind of took off in America. Uh, the first was um, Jessica Mifford's scathing expose of the funeral profession, uh, the American way of death. Um, and then the other is in the 60s, you kind of see the rise of these, uh, you know, cremation societies. Um, and, and from there, you know, you start to see the uh, cremation rate in America rise, uh, you know, at a steady clip, um, you know, almost kind of hit that, um, you know, that, that upward slope. Whereas, you know, from, from 1876 until 1960, um, you know, cremation was, was almost unheard of. And now it's, well, here we are in 2022, and national average is above 50% now. Um, I'm thinking it's closer I to 60. I think it's around 58. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's going to hit 60 next year, maybe. I think it's around 58% this year, or yeah. projected to be. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it rises at 1.8% every year. So um, pretty, pretty steady uh, rise. You know, I've been doing this 18 years and I want to say, you know, where I am, the cremation rate was about 35% uh, when I started. And, you know, now, and the crazy thing, Gail, is, you know, when I went to mortuary school, I, I didn't take any classes on cremation. Uh, you know, I've had to educate myself about it after the fact. Um, you know, thankfully, they are teaching, you know, classes on cremation now, mortuary school. But, um, you know, it, it took a while for, um, you know, I, the educational component to kind of catch up with the times, um, which which just kind of floors me. I mean, even when I went to mortuary school and, you know, cremation was, you know, 35, 40 percent or whatever it was. Uh, that's still a pretty big chunk. And for cremation not to really be part of the conversation then, mm, but I'm glad it is now. Well, you know, and so many of the mortuary schools were founded to sell the chemicals for embalming and uh, big emphasis on the embalming. <laughs> well, a lot of them were called embalming schools um, that, that kind of morphed into a more generalized, uh, you know, kind of mortuary education, you know, that covers, uh, you know, the soft sciences as well as the hard sciences, you know, so accounting, mortuary law, you know, psychology, all those are, you know, what, what they call the soft sciences. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings us to the new trends that funeral directors need to be educated about. Uh, it's amazing what's going on in the field with uh, more eco-friendly methods of disposition, with uh, people wanting to talk about death. I mean, I think we can agree that it's hard to get people to discuss death, but uh, there are new death discussion movements. In fact, you interviewed me about those for your book. And, oh, there's so much That's to right. talk about. That's right. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, Gail, it's, it's you know, when, when people talk about uh, kind of the, the next thing in funeral service, uh, a lot of times, you know, the, the thing on their mind is uh, final disposition. Okay. And final disposition is, um, you know, right now, you know, the big ones are burial and cremation. Well, you know, when I started writing the book, um, you know, back in 2018, uh, nobody had heard of human composting, which is called NOR, natural organic reduction. And now it's legal in four states and there's legislation uh, in a bunch of other states and alkaline hydrolysis is uh, legal in 22 states. And for your listeners who aren't in the profession, uh, alkaline hydrolysis is sometimes called, uh, you know, water cremation or aquamation. And it's essentially uh, reducing the body to something that looks like flame cremated remains, but using water and an alkaline substance and some heat and pressure. Um, and But, the, but the, what you get back are you know, the lay person would not be able to tell the difference between that and uh, flame cremated remains. Um, So, you know, there's these different forms of disposition that are emerging. And then, of course, there's the throwback green cremation, which is is really a throwback to colonial burial practices. Um, And and that seems to be what the conversation um, is caught on if you will. Uh, but, but I give you a lot of credit for, you know, talking about all the other stuff 
that is a disposition. Um, you know, talking about, you know, getting your financial affairs in order, uh, talking about putting your notes down for your obituary. What do you want said about you? Who else better knows that than you? The person that lived the life, you know, your family and your friends are going to do the best they can, but there's no greater gift uh, to leave your family at least a set of notes. It's like, hey, this is what I want to go in my obituary. And really, if you have the wherewithal, don't stop there. Go to your local funeral home, get some ideas down on paper. Um, and, you know, people then go, well, you know, prepaying and all that racket. And, you know, I'm not going to say good, bad or indifferent about prepaying. All I'm saying is pre planning. You don't have to prepay for your funeral if you're not comfortable doing that. Um, so, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but at least go in and get your wishes down uh, on paper. So, uh, you know, I, I've never had a family, not one scale, uh, after we've made the arrangements or finalized the arrangements, I should say, sit back in their chair and say, God, I wish mom or dad hadn't pre-planned. Never once. They're always so glad that, that you know, their parents even picked out. And this might seem like kind of a, a trivial thing, but like even the little verse for the back of the prayer card. You know, it's people agonize over this, but, you know, if they know their mom wanted that, you know, that brings them peace. Um, and then there's kind of the other big things that are happening in funeral service. Um, you know, this... Uh, the rise of the unchurched, which I think COVID has made, um, you know, I don't want to say even worse, but even there are even more unchurched, you know, uh, when churches went yeah. virtual. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, the, there's a certain segment of the population that those churches will never get back. Um, and so we're seeing more and more uh, funeral celebrants, you know, so more and more families want uh, humanistic services. And, uh, you know, good, bad or indifferent, you know, different people have opinions on that. Uh, but but that's just the way things are going. You're going to see more of those. So I'm sitting down with a lot of families and kind of starting from scratch, uh, you know, creating a funeral service because they're not religious. So they can't fall back on that religious rubric that dictates, you know, maybe a Methodist funeral service or a Catholic funeral service or even a Muslim funeral service, right? We're starting from scratch and creating something that's meaningful to them. And then the last thing I want to touch on, um, you know, that I kind of see coming way down the pike, but maybe not that far, is uh, VR funerals. Um, I definitely think there will be a time, probably before I retire, that Gail, you'll be sitting on your couch with a set of VR goggles, and I'll be sitting on my couch with a set of VR goggles, and we'll go to, you know, maybe some beach somewhere and pay our respects to Mrs. Smith for the loss of her husband without ever having getting up off our couch. Wow. Um, and I, I <laughs> definitely think that is going to be, um, you know, a piece of funeral service in the, in the not-so-distant future. Incredible. Well, Todd, this has been an amazing conversation. The book is Last Rites, The Evolution of the American Funeral. An incredible book, amazing history, very colorful. You did a great job on this book, Todd. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was a labor of love, a very, very, very long labor of love. <laughs> and you can find... This book, uh, well, it's on Amazon and bookstores, wherever you buy books, 
or ebooks. I'm guessing there's ebooks as well. Yeah. Or if you want somebody to talk it to you, T. Ryder Smith did a great job narrating it. So uh, you, you can download the audiobook and have somebody tell it to you. Oh, wonderful. And your website is toddhara, T-O-D-D-H-A-R-R-A.com, where we can also learn about your other books, your novels, which I didn't know about until just before we had this conversation, uh, the Trip Clipper Undertaker Mystery Series, and uh, Grave Matters and Patient Zero. Sounds so fascinating. Check them out. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, is the author of three award-winning books. In A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, Learn How to Save Money, Reduce Family Conflict, and Minimize Stress at a Time of Grief. Just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. Kicking the Bucket List, 100 Downsizing and Organizing Things to Do Before You Die brings a light touch to downsizing and organizing for end-of-life issues. And Hail and Farewell Cremation Ceremonies, Templates and Tips helps you easily create meaningful memorial services with sample scripts, suggested readings, and music recommendations. These fine books by Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, are available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Well, Todd, thank you for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. And to all my listeners out there, I do want to remind you, just like talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead. So start a conversation today. Thank you for joining us on the Doyen of Death podcast. You can find episodes of this podcast and past episodes of A Good Goodbye with Gail Rubin on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Gail's work, visit agoodgoodbye.com. <laughs>